Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. David Lametti, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, joins us to highlight some of the major topics, well, like bail reform, uh, nixing the gun amendment, and of course, concerns about MAID. And we cover all things American politics, too, uh, south of the border. Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington reporter, will join us on the program. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The week that was in Ottawa, uh, one of the more controversial pieces of legislation was introduced uh, by the Liberals, and uh, they have withdrawn part of it anyway. Uh, they're withdrawing an amendment to their guns bill that uh, introduced a what some people call a controversial new definition of assault-style weapons. MPs on the Public Safety Committee unanimously agreed that the Liberal motion was wrong, and they just said withdraw it, and it was it was withdrawn unanimously. But Liberal MP Pam Domoff says, well, it was really just a sign of cross-partisan cooperation. This is a um, a big step forward, and I think you know we need to be listening to each other. I hope Canadians are heartened listening to the conversations around this table where all four parties are uh, agreeing to work together and cooperate. Uh, I don't know if it was cooperation or they just realized that, hey, they've uh, they've made a mistake here. Anyway, to talk about that and uh, lots more in the uh, the last week in Ottawa, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's let's start with the gun bill. Uh, I don't know if they're ever going to introduce legislation that's going to please everybody when it comes to restrictions on guns and definitions of guns. Uh, but it just seemed from the reaction uh, that from all the political parties that uh, this liberal amendment to this bill that basically, uh, well, the accusation was it was going to include things like hunting rifles, et cetera, et cetera, was just a bridge too far for some people to, to be able to handle. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember when that came out and there was a big reaction and, you know, for that reason, because how far is this thing going to reach? And there there was a sense that they had not done the proper consultation and people were feeling like this was out of nowhere and not the right way to go about things and was going to create, you know, problems for for people and pit people against one another. And so this was all a mess politically. And so now they're sort of dialing it down and saying, okay, well, we got that wrong. I think it's a bit rich to look at this and say, oh, look at the the partisan cooperation. "Eh, Not really. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) But clearly they they think, you know, this isn't something that they're going to, they're not going to kind of make this part of the bill something that they're going to insist on to get it through because they are a minority parliament, right? Like as much as I, I don't look at this and think, oh yeah, look at all the parties working together to get, make the right thing. I think they, they still have to live with the fact that if they're making this difficult for their partners, the NDP, to get this through because a number of the caucus members in the NDP said like, this is not something we want to bring to our constituents. So if they're, if they're in that scenario, it's, it doesn't make any sense for them to blow huge chunks of political capital on something that, you know, they, they're just not, you know, they're kind of standing out there on their own. Why is it though, Laurie, that this idea of gun control, which, which I support, I think we, we need to do something here. And, and nine times out of 10, when they do public opinion surveys, the majority of Canadians say, yeah, yeah there's got to be some restrictions, maybe even some banning of some uh, kinds of firearms. But they just can't seem to get anything like this through Parliament at any given time. I, I know the gun lobby is very strong here, as it is in many other countries, too. Is, is that the stumbling block? I mean, I think that it's possible that the advocacy, that the, you know, the engagement on an issue like this, organized engagement even, you know, is higher 
than you would see on another kind of legislation, right? Like this, the topic of this, as you say, is very, you know, very much a sensitive one. The gun lobby here is nowhere near as strong as the gun lobby in the U.S. and is no, no, nowhere near as tied to, um, you know, the, the kind of fiber and the identity of the, of the culture in the U.S. and the way it is here. But it's still, um, it's still a very deep issue that cuts in some pretty complicated ways, I think. Like, the the whole issue of what the state can tell you to do with with yourself and your security and the, that's that's a key issue in a democracy and so i think again it's not as as pivotal to the culture here as it is in the us but it's still a, a pretty important point when it comes to the decisions you make for yourself and what you're going to do to protect yourself and and also you know what you're doing by way of potential harm to other people and how we balance that all off like this is a really key issue that people can get you know, very dug into, obviously. But then there's also the way that it cuts in terms of uh, lifestyle and urban versus rural lifestyles, for example. Mm -hmm. So the way people think about guns and the types of regulations that might be required in an urban setting do not make the same kind of sense in a rural setting. And it's kind of, it's, it's a difficult thing, I think, because it shows how if a government is trying to get something through like this and you need a majority support, You've really got to work at that. You've really got to have the conversations to bring people to a consensus so that it makes sense. And in our kind of very adversarial partisan system, we don't see that very often. Uh, lots of other stuff to cover here. I want to shift over to something else here that uh, made some headlines last week, too, of course, and uh, that being uh, Amira El-Gawabi, uh, who was uh, basically the person who was appointed as the, the point person uh, for the uh, the government's anti-Islamophobia uh, movement. And, uh, well, she made some comments that uh, that really ticked off a lot of former Quebecois, uh, including the premier. Um, he's still calling for her to be booted out of the position. But she has apologized. Uh, do, you, do you forgive and forget? I guess Blanchette doesn't think that way. Oh, good grief. Like, what a fiasco. Immediately out of the gate, as soon as this appointment is made official, they've got a mess on their hands. And she's apologizing for an op-ed she wrote, you know, I think it's three years ago. I mean, like, it's just such another unforced error on the part of the liberals. Like, do they want this person to fill this role or not? And I was, I know you're going to have Minister Lametti on, on the show later, but I, I just couldn't make sense of it when he's saying, you know, well, now that she's apologized, we should let her do the job. Good Lord. Did you not know what she wrote? Like, and are you going to stand behind your appointment? Because, she, you know, surely you would have Googled and, and read that that's what she wrote. And it would have been one of the reasons that you appointed her in this position in the first place. But it just seems like when they make these kinds of appointments, they're trying to, to give themselves some room to duck and cover on something that's politically sensitive, particularly when it comes to something that's sensitive in Quebec. And now... It just like I don't envy the position she's in. When you're in a minority government, you've told us this numerous times because we've the Trudeau government's been in a minority government position for so long now. Rule one is don't give the opposition ammunition, and these guys seem to do it on a pretty regular basis. Uh, with the amendment to the gun bill, now with this appointment, uh, clearly somebody's not doing their homework, or they just think that no matter what we throw at the fan here, it's not going to stick to us. I think that's right. I mean, in in a lot of ways, like this is something like what, why appoint a special representative in, in this context anyway, right? Like why there's a whole bunch of questions we could go down this rabbit hole around what is the appropriate way for a government to deal with a priority like this and having a special representative to give them advice, you know, someone who's not a policymaker herself. Uh, you could have done all sorts of things. You could have 
you know, why not appoint a minister who's, who's in charge of this? Why not appoint a cabinet committee? Like, why not put, like, there's all kinds of reasons why a government is going to take a decision to make something a priority and put resources around it. And they've done this, but they've done this with someone who's outside of the government. And in so doing, they're, they're really like, they're drawing to attention, attention to her credentials in this regard, which shouldn't be a problem, but, but yeah. then she's in this position of, of you know, ha- having to apologize, which I, I think is, is, is not the appropriate way. And it, she, in my view, she, she ought not to have had to do that, but you know, if, if this is why she's in the role, if these are the, 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 the opinions she has, and she's made a career for, for, you know, she's, she's on public record as having spoken to these issues. Why on earth would she apologize now? But here we are. And we're seeing how this government deals with, things that are sensitive spots for, for it. And, you know, it's just kind of like, what, what does this do to her authority in the position now? And it, it puts Blanchette in this position where he's doubled down too. You know, yeah. he's, what's he supposed to say? Oh, well, yeah, she's, you know, she's apologized. So it's okay. Like, you know, when, she, when he's trying to say, well, people are saying that essentially Quebec are, Quebecers are racist. You can't just say, oh, sorry <laughs> for that. Right. Like it's, it's just kind of a mess of an issue and it won't go away for sure. Is there a vetting process at all? I mean, there should be, and and you yeah. can sort of understand maybe during the heat, the heat of an election, you know, okay, maybe we can't vet all 320 candidates or whatever that number is these days, but this is a, a one individual appointment. I mean, as you say, if you just Google it, this thing pops right up yeah. there. Did anybody Absolutely. read it? And you have to the, think they did, right? And it's sort of like now you're, you know, why, why is she being like, I don't, I don't know what the heck the conversations were between somebody on Trudeau's side and, and, and her, you know, and, and at what point the decision was made that she's going to apologize. And I have no idea if they asked her to apologize or she did this voluntarily or what happened, but the, the appearance of it is sort of like, here's this person who went on the public record with somebody that, with something that she knows a lot about is passionate about. And now she's having to offer some apology, which makes me, which, which is just putting her at really lousy spot and again just undermines her in the role that she's only been in for like less than a week yeah. and it and undermines the government too in the sense that it you know ha- have the courage to make an appointment and stand by it and i mean there's there's no way nobody googled this person and so you knew who she was and what she was when you appointed her and now you're you know you expect her to apologize for it and so oh god i just this is this is one that i that i honestly am like wow (laughs) like yeah the opposition doesn't have to do anything they can just sit there and wait for them to say do something yeah anyway yeah. Anyway, the meeting she had with Blanchette, I mean, the media were allowed in there. And I mean, I mean mm. she apologized, but she didn't look too penitent. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I get the sense this is not the end of the story. I think you're absolutely right. And I think he's, you know, he, he's hit a nerve, so he's not going to let this go. And, the, you know, there are different ways that he's going to be trying to, like, Blanchette wants to come across as I'm not like other politicians, right? The rest of them are all, you know, worried about partisan, you know, what's good and what's bad, and they're strategic, and they're playing things off. I'm the person who's here as the principled, you know, pure representative of what's best for Quebec. And so there's a there's a big existential piece for him to double down on this. And given her position, it's not like she can go back and forth like a like a politician would, right? Like she's she's in a different scenario. She can't really start having fights with people politically, especially not not party leaders. And so she's really in a bind in terms of how she can even like apart from what she said already, what else is she supposed to say? 
got a minute or so left here. I got to ask you. I mean, the, tomorrow the prime minister will be meeting with the premiers. Uh, healthcare is the agenda. They're all talking the talk. Uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, especially Laurie, that yeah, a deal is imminent. And I think we're going to do this. Uh, they've said that before, and they haven't made too much progress. Uh, I I would think the first thing they're going to be looking at when they all sit down at the table tomorrow is uh, like a poker game, right? Uh, and they're waiting for the prime minister to ante up here. Where's the twenty six billion dollars we're looking for? Put that on the table, then we can have a conversation. Is is it going to be as easy as they seem to be describing it? I mean, this this meeting in particular, and we can say this about a lot of meetings of premiers and prime ministers, is the actual meeting itself and the hype around it is is very, you know, it's a show, right? Like it's not, sure. obviously these conversations have been going on for a long time. Obviously some decisions have been made here. Obviously premiers have made their own announcements, particularly Doug Ford, about what sorts of changes he wants to bring in. And the federal government has responded to those things, right? Like we've heard from the prime minister and, and the health minister about how, where they are on, Doug's pl- on Doug Ford's plans. And so I think this is largely about the kind of sign on the dotted line, here's the money, and what that, you know, I think we've heard a lot of what the the logic is at this point. This is about finalizing it before everybody gets to take it on the road and shop it around. And then we'll see it come through, you know, in the form of the budget. This will be part of the budget bill that comes in the spring. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see the fallout for this, too, uh, because, I mean, they all agreed to the to, you know, the daycare program, too, uh, including yeah. Ontario, finally. And But, you know, after they signed it and got the money starting, with court, and then all of a sudden they said, yeah, well, we didn't really mean we were going to do it this way. So th- more to come on this one, as they say. A- as always, Laurie, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Have a good week, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds great, Bill. Take care. To you, too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some very controversial pieces of legislation that uh, that cross our next guest's uh, desk on a pretty regular basis, including gun control, which has, has been a hot-button issue for generations, I guess, in this country. Uh, pleased to welcome to the program to talk about that and a couple of other uh, very, very important pieces of legislation. Minister of Justice and Attorney General for the Canadian government, uh, the Honorable David Lametti. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. Uh, pleased to be with you, Bill. Let's talk, maybe if we could, let's start with Bill C-21, the firearms uh, bill that uh, that you've been uh, working on for quite some time right now. Uh, you've been adamant, Minister, about, about the, you know, your stated goals here, of course. Uh, it's you know, it's handguns, it's assault-style weapons that you're, you're addressing here. Uh, the amendment that was presented here that eventually was withdrawn because of some of the pushback on here uh, seemed to cast a much wider net than a lot of people uh, had hoped that, that they were going to see from the government right now. Uh, I, I don't think you're ever going to find a piece of legislation that everybody's going to like here, but are you concerned uh, about how you may have to water this down, this legislation down to try to get some support? Well, I, I think that our, our intent remains the same. Uh, you've, you've stated it well, which is, which is handguns and, uh, and assault-style rifles. Uh, we, we, it's very hard to try to get a definition uh, of assault-style rifle we obviously need to go back and tweak a bit. It's never been our intention uh, to uh, go after hunting rifles or anything like that. And so we have to, we have to go back and tweak a bit. And, and so we've pulled those amendments. Uh, what t- sort of a time frame? I mean, you only get so many kicks at the can, I guess, but maybe it's time to move on. Uh, and, you know, when you're looking at something like this and, and the hunting aspect uh, of it, uh, I'm, well, you've heard this before, Minister, of course, in your, all your years in public life. You know, as, as soon as anybody tries to introduce a piece of legislation such as you're doing, uh, you know, the, the hue and cry from the other side is, well, they're coming to get your guns. And, and all of a sudden, uh, the, the pressure is there. And it doesn't seem as if anybody's going to be open-minded enough to look at anything that's going to move you in that direction. 
that's a fair point. Uh, but we still have to we still have to try. We still have to consult. We still have to uh, make sure that that people have their say, and we have to make sure that we're clear about about not only what our goals are. I think we've been clear about that, but uh, but we need to be uh, we need to be a bit more precise in our definitional work. Um, Minister Mendicino is leading that file. And I'm gonna I'm going to leave him uh, leave it to him to determine the timelines um, and also to lead those consultations. Well, we look forward to uh, to the next uh, wave in that and just how it's going to be received. Uh, I watched you with Mercedes Stevenson on Global yesterday, and I know you touched on a couple of very important issues. Uh, one of them being bail reform, and and it's something that is very germane, I guess, to people in, in southern Ontario here because of the tragic uh, killing of an OPP officer in in Hagersville just a, a few weeks ago, uh, who uh, the accused, of course, was on bail or had been released on bail. I know there was a, a bench warrant out for him, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it's it's raised this specter once again that there are people out on the street that shouldn't be out on the street. Uh, the opposition parties are really locked onto that right now. Uh, what do you look for in the way of bail reform uh, to create some sense of fairness and, and actually, you know, the assuage, I guess, some of the concerns people have about who is given bail? Look, I... I, I... I agree that Canadians, you know, we all want to feel safe and we all, uh, I think, have a right to be safe. Um, and, and certainly our hearts go out to, to family of Constable Pershala and, and uh, others, the CBC journalists, uh, others who have been mm-hmm. k- killed recently. It is something that's been on our radar screen for a while. So this is not, uh, this is not new. Tragedies happen. Uh, we, we as uh, governing uh you know, members of a government have to try to anticipate. Uh, we were in touch with the provinces last fall, uh, Minister Mendicino and myself, and we committed at that point to begin looking at bail, and our deputy ministers had already begun doing that. It isn't an easy process because bail is a charter right. Bail's also an old common law right, and in our system, we're proud of it. You're innocent until proven guilty. And so anybody we put, uh, anybody who goes to jail awaiting trial is is still is still legally innocent. Obviously not every, uh, is still uh, uh, legally innocent uh, until they're proven guilty. So bail is a right. We have to work within those parameters. We have a letter from the premiers uh, as well to the prime minister, and we're going to look at some of the suggestions that they have in there. Part of the solution will be, uh, I would think, uh, some changes to the federal, at the federal level to the criminal law. Uh, people have suggested maybe adding a few more reverse onuses. There are some that exist already. We added in Bill C-75, we added a reverse onus for intimate partner violence. There's already uh, a reverse onus with respect to prohibited weapons. So the person has to prove that, that they, they won't be a danger to public safety as opposed to the Crown having to prove that they, won't, that they will be a danger to public safety. It's a fine distinction, but it, it does give argumentative weight one way or the other. The uh, but I think a lot of it too is working with the provinces, and I, I've said this now, have said this now a number of times, working with the provinces to make sure that the administration of bail uh, is done more effectively. You you mentioned uh, that that in in the case in Hagersville, uh, the person was out on a bench warrant. What, what do we need to do to help the provinces? Uh, is it resources? Uh, is it other kinds of support? Such that when a bench warrant does go out for a person's arrest, the person gets arrested, and and or or just in terms of the administration, how can we better how can we better administer uh, so that we we don't run into these uh, situations and so the public can feel safe. 
It's a complex situation. I think people have to understand that. I mean, it's, it's not singular. You you just touched on a couple of uh, of related issues, you know, uh, uh, the court system itself, the backlog there, uh, police resources, things of that nature. So it can be. But other governments, past governments, uh, Minister, have attempted to do this. Uh, the, the Harper government, of course, passed what they called tough on, you know, crime uh, legislation, a lot of it included in some omnibus bills. Now, Supreme Court has struck down an awful lot of them, but uh, because that, the you know, as you say, it has to be, be balanced against the charter right now uh, and and trying to find that middle ground, I guess, because it, it, I don't know if any two situations are the same when you start looking at some of the details of some of these cases. Yeah. Well, look, the tough on crime, the tough on crime rhetoric is, is simply rhetoric. It's being abandoned everywhere, including in the Southern United States, which inspired the Harper regime. And I would also put to you that the tough on crime is what actually caused the major clogging in our court systems. We began to invest too much judicial and, uh, police resources in relatively non-serious crimes with, with minimum mandatory penalties and that sort of thing. And all we did is, is we clogged everything up to the point where cases started to get thrown out because they took too much time. Uh, when, Michael, when Justice Michael Moldaver retired from the Supreme Court, a, a conservative appointed judge, a leading criminal law judge, and, and one of the probably you know, leading criminal law Supreme Court judges in Canadian history, when he retired a, a couple of months ago, he said in a speech that we needed to dedicate more resources to more serious crime, and we needed to stop wasting resources on the less serious stuff where incarceration isn't the solution. So the tough on crime stuff is just rhetoric. It's not working. It's, it's failed everywhere it's been tried, and, and I think rightly we have to move away from that. Well, and the courts, as you say, have directed uh, the government to do that anyway with uh, with some of their uh, adjudications over that. I, I know your time is tight, and I know it's such a busy day, and, and we really do appreciate t- taking some time. But one other issue I, I did want to uh, get your, your feedback on, Minister, is is the uh, the MAID issue, of course, the medical assistance in dying uh, bill that is in law right now. There was an attempt to try to find some modifications for it, and, and you've extended the deadline, and, and I think it's basically kind of out there right now, and you're not quite sure how to approach this. So maybe you could bring us up to speed on, on where you are with those amendments. Well, sure. There, there is the um, the coming into force of uh, the the provision that was added by the Senate in 2019 uh, that if one only has a mental illness or a mental disorder as a sole underlying condition, one would be able uh, to seek MAID. Again, there are safeguards, there are criteria. We've we've put that on ice for one year in order to allow for. Uh, provincial authorities, medical authorities, uh, faculties of medicine across Canada to internalize the guidelines that have have been developed by an expert committee, which are good guidelines, which contain safeguards. I I really have to underline, Bill, that this is not the case of somebody who is depressed or suicidal going to their doctor and saying, I want MAID. That is not this. Uh, You won't be able to get MAID on that. There are stricter criteria. These are people who have had mental disorders who've been suffering from these mental disorders for years. Nothing works, like all the various kinds of treatments and medications. Um, those people are suffering. They have, a right, they have a right to seek MAID, but only within the very strict safeguards that, that uh, have been elaborated, not just in the law, but, in, but by the expert committee. That will happen in a year, but it was felt that we still needed more time to get everybody on the same page. At the same time, there's another parliament committee that's meeting to look at not only mental uh, disorders, they'll, they'll report later in February, but also the question of, of advanced requests uh, and mature minors. Uh, advanced requests in particular is 
is very popular amongst Canadians every time there's there's been a poll, every time I've consulted with people. Um, we'll see what they have. Uh, we'll see what they have uh, to suggest there. But again, that would require legislation. Uh, in either case, uh, uh, advanced requests or mature minors, that's well down the road. We're moving prudently, step by step. We're allowing we're allowing people to to really understand and accept uh, this. And and as you've seen from 2016, uh, the vast majority of 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 made uh, applications are for people with with terminal illness, terminal cancer in particular, and. In general, that has been really well accepted by the Canadian population, well appreciated by those uh, families who have seen their loved ones go through it, friends, and 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 particularly appreciated by those who seek to have made um, uh, in order to to really control the manner in which in which they leave us. Uh, it's it's quite moving uh, in a, in a positive way, and and again, I just have to underline that the vast vast majority of cases are those cases. Uh, when we talk about uh, um, mental disorders, it's going to be a very tiny fraction uh, of cases. I, I'm glad that you've included the the advanced uh, notice as well, because we actually just talked about a case like that in the Hamilton area uh, not too long ago last week. Uh, a rather tragic situation where they, they did all of this in advance in preparation, uh, checked all the boxes, got all the signatures they needed to get. But uh, uh, once uh, the, the woman involved fell into a coma, the doctor said, well, technically, she's not a stable mind, so we can't do this. And ev everybody felt badly about it, but they just said the legislation needs to be strengthened in, in that particular area. So I would assume this uh, time while you've hit the pause button here there'll be an evaluation of different aspects of that yeah that's right that's right we'll see what the we'll see what the parliamentary the special parliamentary committee uh, both house of commons and senate committee uh suggests to us we made a small tweak in 2019 for for a person who was uh in terminal stages of an illness to set a date down the road in case they did fall into a coma um, but it's it's sad that this person couldn't benefit from that uh, by having by having set a date. Um, it, these are, as you've hinted, these are really difficult issues. Uh, they are um, they're life and death. They're they're about how we live. They're about how we die. They're, they they touch people very profoundly. And so we need to move carefully. We need to move empathetically. And and I hope. Uh, I, I hope that the, the committee will give us good suggestions, but I know that that's what certainly I'm trying to do as Minister of Justice, and that's certainly what our government's trying to do. Well, we'll leave it there for now. I always appreciate the time, Minister. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks very much, Bill. Minister of Justice and Attorney General uh, David Lametti with uh, his thoughts on uh, some of the more, uh, well, controversial but necessary pieces of legislation that uh, he and his uh, department are working on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Devastating news, of course, about uh, the earthquakes, a number of them actually, that have impacted Turkey and Syria. And uh, we know that uh, President Biden has responded to this. We want to talk about that and a number of other key issues going on in Washington uh, in light of the events that happened this past weekend. And joining us to talk about this, uh, uh, Reggie Cicchini, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning. That's uh, right off the bat, uh, unexpected news, of course, the tragic news about the, the earthquakes going on in Turkey and in Syria, a number of them, apparently. Uh, I know the president has responded on Twitter to this. Has, uh, has the Biden administration uh, actually outlined just what role they're going to be playing in, I, I guess, first of all, the relief uh, and recovery of, of the affected areas? 
Yeah, uh, we've heard from the administration in a couple of different ways here. Uh, uh, late last night, very early this morning, we heard from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, saying that the White House had directed USAID, USAID, uh, and federal govern, uh, government partners to uh, kind of assess and address the situation uh, as it unfolds. And then within the last couple of minutes, we had a statement from the White House saying that the president has uh, authorized a quote-unquote immediate U.S. response, but in Turkey... Uh, obviously, Turkey being a NATO ally, there is kind of a, a reason here for that. A lot of the, uh, the nations are going to be assisting with this. What the U.S. is not doing is committing that same kind of urgent response to the catastrophic situation in Syria. Uh, obviously, Syria has very few diplomatic relations. Uh, they're kind of banking on or relying on what could be earthquake diplomacy here in that other nations will try to assist with Syria. But the White House says that um, U.S. supported humanitarian partners are responding to the situation in Syria. Obviously, this is something that's going to have an impact through that area. They are doing what they can in the White House as they are in most NATO uh, uh, countries to try and uh, assist with that as well. Uh, I don't know information is, is scattered at this stage, and you know, as you're getting bits and pieces of it almost every minute here to, uh, after this uh, news broke. Uh, but is there concern though, about inequity in the response? Uh, as you say, the NATO uh, response is probably going to be focused on Turkey. The EU, similarly, uh, the United Nations, uh, is, and, and you know the devastation, as you said, has reached into Syria as well. Uh, who comes to their aid? Who's going to be there on that side? Well, uh, you're right. I mean, look, NATO and the EU have already made commitments to Turkey, and I believe uh, Turkey's president uh, has said that 45 nations uh, at the time had said that there was going to be some kind of uh, assistance. Uh, for Syria, it becomes much more difficult. Uh, and again, it is because this is a country that has isolated itself. It has been isolated. It has been under heavy sanctions. But in times of need, there are oftentimes um, an ability to break uh, or at least put aside what can be, um, you know, a, a difficult diplomatic relations. And we've already heard that Israel is going to be one of the nations that is going to supply some form of aid uh, on the ground in Syria. It's a couple of hours away. It will take a couple of hours to get there. But this is obviously uh, a gigantic step forward. And again, is that kind of quote unquote earthquake diplomacy here where you can see a nation like Israel forgetting about the, the 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 kind of issues that exist between it and Syria and send in aid because at the end of the day this is a humanitarian crisis and this is a portion of Syria the one of the last rebel held parts of the country that has faced significant pushback from the government uh, and has been kind of caught up in a civil war for the last number of years these people had very little already they very many of them now have nothing uh, and this is going to weigh on the shoulders of the world which is why you will see some kind of aid put forward. We don't know what it is, but that there is an ability here to kind of ignore the political, you know, tensions that exist to say, look, we need to help the people that are there. A very fluid situation, uh, breaking news uh, and with updates almost, uh, as I say, by the minute here. So I will be watching for your updates on that. Uh, before this tra tra tragedy actually struck, I guess the story in Washington over the last couple of days anyway, Reggie, it dominated the Sunday morning political shows, of course, uh, was this Chinese balloon. They call it a weather balloon. I, I think there's strong evidence to the contrary about that. Uh, the president took some heat from the opposition parties of uh, Rubio and others, uh, and Ted Cruz all took to the airwaves to say he acted too slowly, didn't do the right thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are you hearing in the Beltway today about it? Well, I mean, look, the administration is saying that they did this uh, appropriately, that they took the steps that were needed to ensure the safety uh, of those that were on the ground. And ultimately, the balloon fell out of the sky after it was shot down in the air. 
uh, over the weekend, a couple of miles off the coast uh, of South Carolina. But Republicans are really pushing back, saying that the Biden administration dropped the ball, that it put America's national security at risk here. What Republicans aren't doing, Bill, is talking about the fact that this took place three times uh, during the Trump administration, according to officials uh, at the Pentagon. Said situations didn't last as long as this one, but there was no shooting down of a balloon in the previous administration. I think there are secondary questions and comments and concerns uh, that the administration had uh, when it came to dealing with this balloon. Number one, if they had shot it down, like ended up happening, we found out that the debris field was about seven miles wide. That is a significant you know, part of the ground for some of this material to fall on. And should the balloon have been broken up in the sky over ground and fallen and potentially injured or killed somebody, there's a real risk that the administration would have been accused of being careless or reckless. So this was kind of a a lose-lose situation for the administration, but ultimately they are saying that they handled this appropriately. Well, and I guess some clarity on that, too, is, uh, as we've found out from some of your reporting, uh, the payload on this thing apparently was this, uh, the size, that they said, of three you know, touring buses. I mean, uh, there was a lot of stuff there, and, uh, and some could have been some severe damage. And as uh, one of the, uh, the folks on the Sunday morning show was saying, uh, if, they did blow, you know, if they shot it down over ground, I mean, a lot of that stuff could have been damaged and ruined. I mean, they want to find out what's out, what was going on in there. So I, I think there was a strategy within that strategy to try to recover as much as possible. Absolutely as well. I mean, look, there are also questions that have been kind of circulating off air over the last couple of days of what potentially might have been inside that balloon. So if it had been shot down, if that was, you know, thinking within the Chinese government, if there was something in the balloon that could also cause uh, additional damages or health issues on the ground, that again could become um, catastrophic for this administration. But now that they have uh, Navy teams out in the Atlantic Ocean trying to collect the bits and pieces from this uh, this balloon with what had that giant satellite uh, attached to it, uh, they want information on it. It's it's not going to be you know hard to believe the administration had scrambled any signals uh, trying to get to that or come from that balloon. But ultimately, they are going to try and figure out what it was. Look, China says it was a meteorological, uh, you know, uh, personal vessel that was trying to help the, 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 the country deal with things with the climate. There's a second balloon over South America right now. Nobody is buying this outside of Beijing. Uh, and there are questions. What were they trying to do? But also, what were they trying to get that they couldn't get from satellites that, that exist above the Earth right now? Yeah, and that's one of the things that, that I, we still don't have an answer to. Uh, they have the capability, the satellite capability, to to look at all these stuff. I mean, they're Chinese and Russian satellites uh, going buzzing back and forth over the United States as we speak. And you know why why this particular methodology when they could well you know the technologies like I mentioned earlier you can those satellites could take a picture of your license plate as clear as day. So that you know you wonder just what they're trying to do or if it was really just as you are suggesting or at least one of the hypotheses that's out there is just a deliberate attempt to try to to poke and prod at the United States. Yeah, I think that's a real that's a real possibility here that this was simply to try and provoke a response, see what that response from the administration would be, see how long it would last uh, and ultimately give China something else to maybe push back 
uh, on Washington for. Look, these are two countries that are in a fraught relationship. There is distance that is forming. The situation in Taiwan is playing into that. Uh, so too critical infrastructure when it comes to Huawei uh, or last week's decision for the U.S. to open up a military or at least get access to more military installations uh, across the Philippines. This is a relationship that is growing further and further apart. This is now adding to the distance between Beijing uh, and Washington. Whatever D.C. is able to figure out from what was you know, taking place with that balloon, this is obviously going to result in potentially a response. We already saw uh, Anthony Blinken not go for a diplomatic visit to Beijing. Beijing, on the other hand, has said that this is going to elicit some kind of response from China uh, in the future. So this kind of tit for tat is only expanding. Well, and the South China Sea seems to be the area that they're talking mostly about, isn't it, Reggie? That uh, Because let's face it, tensions are pretty tight there right now. Uh, there are, of course, uh, American planes that are, are patrolling the, the borders around China and the South China Sea. Uh, Chinese uh, military and jets have responded to that. They've been strafing some U.S. jets and there've been some, uh, well, we don't know that there's there's actually been any, you know, action about each other. But I mean, the speculation is, is that could blow up at any time. Absolutely, it can, which is why the U.S. acted as it did to try and get this access to these additional bases in the Philippines, because essentially it put a missing link in a chain uh, of U.S. defense allyship uh, alliances, rather, uh, that exist from South Korea through Japan, down through the Philippines uh, and down through uh, Australia. And remember, the U.S. has Guam as well. So the U.S. has positioned itself to be um, available or ready or in, uh, you know, in a position of responding to something that China may do, whether it has to do with Taiwan, whether it has to do with these man-made islands that are being put together uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, the U.S. wants to be in a position of remaining uh, this kind of military strength across Asia Pacific to try and counter what really has become an increasingly aggressive Beijing. Uh, very quickly, if we could circle back on a couple of minutes left here, the uh, State of the Union address is coming up uh, where the president addresses both houses, of course, and uh, there's a, a lot of theater involved in this, but a lot riding on this, too, because the, the question, I guess, around Washington these days is Joe Biden going to seek a second term? I, I know there's some polling that was done even among Democrats that say they're not crazy about the idea, uh, which raises the question, if not Biden, then who? There's, what's, what are you hearing about that kind of speculation? Yeah, look, the if not Biden, then who has been around for two years and it's still uh, an unknown? Would it be Vice President Kamala Harris? Would it be someone from within the upper ranks of the Democrat Party? That simply is not known right now. Nobody is coming out to try and challenge the sitting president. But you're right, that polling shows a majority of Democrats say that they're not really keen on watching Biden run uh, a second time. Additional polling is out there saying that nobody likes the idea of a Trump or Biden uh, uh, matchup. And there's additional polling that says maybe Trump would win over Joe Biden. So this is a lot for the Biden team now to try and think about. He's likely not going to make this decision during the State of the Union. It's expected to come sometime in March or April. But what we're going to likely hear from this uh, from this address on Tuesday night is a way forward, how he intends to shape the, the second part of his uh, of his presidency if he gets that other four years. He will talk about the infrastructure wins. He will talk about this kind of uh, pivot point moving out of COVID and into this kind of new world that we're in. But this is going to be a way to kind of ignore the lawmakers that are sitting out in front of him and talk to the people who are much further out and say to them, here's all the great things that I have done. Here's why I should stick around without saying I want to stick around. I mean, political 
common sense indicates that he's he's going to be running until he says he's not and and he may well this is not the time to say i'm not going to run because then become a lame duck and uh with the the debate about the the debt ceiling that you've been reporting on the last little while and now these tensions with china uh you've got to have somebody in the white house who's going to show some 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 strength and stability don't you Absolutely. And that's why he will talk about the last two years. He was able to get this infrastructure bill passed. He was able to get funding for Ukraine for the last year by the billions of dollars uh, to assist uh, uh, Ukraine's military. Ukraine is now shown that it can be resilient, that it has been able to push back uh, Moscow to a point of where it's just this ongoing slog now. So the president has lost Ukraine, but he has that ability to say, look at what I've been able to do. So he will take the, the crises that are facing the United States right now, he will find a way to talk about if these crises exist in the future, I understand how to do it. I understand how to roll with it. There are some concerns that he may get caught up uh, in trying to put down the previous administration and invoke Trump maybe too many times to try and turn people off. But ultimately, this is going to be a precursor of what we will see uh, should he decide to announce his intentions in March or April, because campaign season is right around the corner with the election, you know, a year and a half away. So he's quickly running out of time, while at the same time, needs to ensure that the odds are in his favor. Well, it's interesting. I, I know we're just about out of time, but uh, about Trump, uh, he's back on social media to a certain extent, to a large extent, and and making a lot of noise right now. I, I don't know how he's being received in, in Republican circles. Uh, Ron DeSantis is still in the wings there deciding what he wants to do. Uh, but at this time, Trump seems to be focusing on his, his Republican rivals as opposed to the Biden administration. Sure. And it's because the Republican rivals are actually gaining some attention right now. This was a Trump show in 2016 and 2020, and he handily was beating out the people around him. But polling shows that there are people that may support someone like Ron DeSantis. They may support someone like Mike Pompeo. They may support someone like Nikki Haley. These are all people who at one point the president himself was standing with, beside, behind and in front of. Uh, and until they pose kind of a political threat to him, he pushes them to the side. Well, if the polling is not in Donald Trump's favor... It potentially could be in someone else's favor. And until there is a plurality of that, he sees these Republicans as the problem because he needs to make sure that he has that top spot. He can deal with President Biden if he becomes the nominee. It's the getting to the nominee part, which is going to be the problem for Donald Trump. The first real hurdle he's had in doing that since he started this, you know, seven years ago. A very, very important week, especially with some of the events, of course, with the earthquakes and, and certainly the China situation. I will be watching, as always, Reggie, for your reporting on this on Global National. Uh, thanks for the time today. I always appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.